On the 7th of June, 2020, protesters at a Black Lives Matter march in the city of Bristol pulled down a statue of a man called Edward Colston. Immediately, several people texted me to ask me if I'd heard about it, and when I checked the news and saw the footage, I cheered. Then I ran into the study and told my partner, and he cheered too. And we cheered again when they dumped it in the harbour. Welcome to The Poison Room, a podcast about dangerous texts, which are sometimes dangerous because of what they omit. I'm Sylvie Kilgallen, and this week's subject is pretty topical. It's about a man, a statue, and the plaque that went with it. Firstly, though, uh, apologies for the delay in the episode. I'm splitting my time between researching this, making masks for people, and sort of preparing for a probably international move away from the city that is the setting of this episode. Bristol is my adopted city. I've lived here for, well, pretty much since 2006 when I first went to university here. It was pretty weird seeing the news of what happened in Bristol get broadcast globally, to see it trending on Twitter and see my American friends cheering for something my little city had done. The overwhelming response to pulling down the statue of Edward Colston was supportive, and people wanted to know why the statue was still up in the first place. What happened in Bristol was the result of a growing move to pull down statues of slave traders, slave owners, genocidiaires in countries all around the world. Good riddance, Leopold II, genocidal jerk. And to generally reassess whether memorials to certain people really belong in our public spaces, and what belongs in a museum where it can be properly contextualised, and what just doesn't really belong anywhere anymore. Whilst the attention from outside Bristol has largely been favourable, the pulling down of the statue was the culmination of decades of controversy in Bristol about not just the statue, but the way the whole city memorialises Edward Colston, what we learn and teach about him, and what we don't. And that is part of a larger attempt to acknowledge black history within the city. And, of course, this means we need historical context starting with who exactly Edward Colston was. Edward Colston was born on the 2nd of November in Temple Street, Bristol, in 1636. In 1642, the First Civil War broke out. It wasn't actually the First Civil War, but it's what it's known as. For many complex reasons, including religion, wars, defeats, money, and kind of being inept, the then-king, Charles I, wasn't really getting along great with Parliament. Charles I had become king in 1625. He didn't exactly inherit a calm situation when his father died. There was work to be done in terms of pulling the country together, getting Parliament on his side, and dealing with religious worries. And Charles I botched it magnificently. He was bad at communicating, got caught up in expensive wars that weren't popular, and did some dodgy tax stuff got into a mess with Scotland, surprise, rebellions in Ireland, and generally made Parliament quite worried that at some point soon he was going to just start to try and govern without them. He also allowed the Duke of Buckingham, George Villiers, way too big a role in decision-making than others would have liked. Well, at least he did until 1628, when the Duke was assassinated in Portsmouth 
as he prepared for another military expedition. Point is, there's some tensions going on between Charles and Parliament, which led, ultimately, in 1642, to the First Civil War. Various cities and areas start to declare their allegiances, siding with the Royalists or the Parliamentarians. Bristol ideally wanted to keep out of it. Individuals within the city might have had loyalties one way or another, but the Common Council of the city did not sway to declare for either side, and primarily seemed to be interested with strengthening its own defences rather than committing to a cause. At least until some parliamentary forces managed to get into the city in December of 1642. Today, Bristol is a very small city in the grand scheme of things. But at the time, it was the second largest city, and also had a decent presence in the armaments industry. And, of course, it was very important as a hub of trade. On the 26th of July, 1643, royalists took the city from the parliamentarians. Edward Colston's father, William Colston, was one of those individuals within the city who did have a loyalty. He was a staunch supporter of Charles, and he was also a prominent figure within Bristol. He was one of twelve aldermen for the city, and in August of 1643, two months after the Royalists had taken the city, he was made Sheriff of Bristol. We don't need to know anything more about the First Civil War beyond the fact that the Royalists lost. On the 11th of September 1645, Bristol surrendered to the Parliamentarians. When that happened, William Colston was stripped of his titles of alderman and sheriff. For some reason, one can only assume wholly unrelated to anything I just mentioned, the Colston family moved to London around this time. The record of Edward's early life is patchy, and after the family moved to London, he next crops up again in the historical record in 1654, when he was apprenticed to Humphrey Aldington of the Mercer's Company of London. After this, Again, things get patchy. After the outcome of the Second Civil War, because of course there were more, Charles I's head ends up being separated from his body in 1549. This led to England having Oliver Cromwell as Lord Protector until his death in 1658, when his son succeeded him because this was totally not a monarchy. His son lasted in that position for under a year, things kind of fell apart, and after a bit more squabbling and war, in 1660, England decided to try the whole monarchy thing again. We don't know what Edward Colston was doing for any of this time. We know his dad returned to Bristol after the restoration of the monarchy, and resumed his life there, but we don't know what happened with Edward until he re-emerges in 1673, when he's enrolled in the Mercer's company. So, presumably in that time, he was doing merchanting stuff. And he continued to do merchanting stuff, exporting textiles and other things, and importing wine and other things. We know that during the 1670s, his family started to get involved with the Royal African Company, which, with a name like that, you know is going to be super ethical and not at all involved in the slave trade. Or it's going to be the biggest business in the transporting enslaved people in Africa to plantations in the Americas industry. One or the other. On the 26th of March, 1680, 
Edward decided to get in on the action too. Now, those who like to try and salvage Colston's reputation might point out that we don't know how much money exactly he made from his dealings with the Royal Africa Company, though it was still thousands of pounds in dividends alone. And they suggest that the bulk of his fortune came from the commodities trading he was still doing in Europe with the textiles and wine stuff. To which I would point out, that's nice, but uh, the quantity of money earned from engaging in selling and transporting literal human beings into slavery does not make the action more or less immoral. The man was a slave trader, working for a company that specialised in trading enslaved people. And he served on the court of assistance for that company three times. And he was deputy governor of the company in 1689 to 1690, a time at which the company had a monopoly on the slave trade. Only two positions within the company ranked higher than deputy governor, the governor and the sub-governor. And by the time Colston became the deputy governor, the position of governor was essentially an honorary one. And to even become an assistant within the company, a role which, despite its name, is more comparable to being a company executive, Edward Colston needed to have at least £400 of shares in the company. In fact, when he became a member of the company in 1680, he purchased £500 worth of shares. By 1685, he had £1,600 worth of shares putting him in a small group of people who had that much stock in the company. Over nearly a decade, Colston managed to get his fingers in nearly all the pies within the company, serving on many of the important committees. As deputy governor, Colston was charged with leading negotiations between the company and the Spanish over a contract to supply enslaved Africans to Spain's colonies. We don't actually know what the outcome of these negotiations was, but that's a thing Colston was happy to do, land contracts to buy more enslaved people to sell to the Spanish. During Colston's time with the company, around 84,500 enslaved African people were transported from Africa to slavery in the colonies. Men, women, and children as young as six were taken. Around 12,200 of those enslaved people were children aged 10 and under they were branded on the chest with the initials of the Royal African Company. 23%, around 19,300 people, died before they ever reached shore. One in four children taken as slaves died on those ships. The bodies of those who died were simply thrown overboard. The ships were designed to cram in as many enslaved people as possible, with no care for the conditions or the deaths they would cause. I'll post pictures of the layout of one of these ships so you can see exactly what conditions Colston and his buddies thought were okay to make other human beings endure after stealing their freedom and literally branding them with their company logo. Edward Colston has blood on his hands. There is no getting around these facts. He was involved in discussions about what goods the company needed to acquire in order to purchase enslaved people, what to pay the captains of the ships transporting them, and the conditions in which enslaved people were kept, and other things that were 
very much to do with successfully running a company that played the largest role at the time in ripping people from their families, homes and countries and transporting them in inhumane conditions that would kill many of them to spend the rest of their lives in slavery and hard labour working on plantations where they could also be murdered, beaten, raped and abused in a multitude of other ways. I do not care how much money he personally made doing this. His crime was not how much money he made from it, but the fact that he did it at all. And being such an esteemed member of the RAC helped Colston's career in other ways. The company was quite happy to grant its contracts to its own members, so being invested in the company provided Colston with the opportunity to expand his own business interests. Interests which were still linked with the slave trade. Here's a description of some of Colston's business dealings from historian Roger Ball. Quote, Analysis of his trading activities prior to joining the RAC in the 1670s show that he was moving cargoes of specific textiles required for trading in West Africa, such as perpetuanas, serges, bays, and other English woolens. These were often in great demand in particular slave trading areas of the West African coast and could be a key commodity in securing significant purchases of enslaved Africans. From the perspective of profiteering, the selling of commodities such as these to the RAC was not of minor financial importance. For example, the value of perpetuanas purchased by the RAC in the 12 years of Edward Colston's involvement was in excess of £60,000. As the conventional price of an enslaved person on the West African coast was about £3, sales of this single commodity can be equated to the purchase of 200,000 human beings. End quote. Edward Colston has blood on his hands. Let's jump back a bit just to keep track of what else is going on in Edward's life other than making money off enslaving people. Edward's father died in 1681, and one of his brothers, Thomas, died around December 1683. Edward wasn't living in Bristol at the time, but his parents, and at least this brother, were. So he visited both when his father died and when Thomas was dying. That second time, he was elected as a member of the Society of Merchant Venturers. The Society of Merchant Venturers was formed in 1552, emerging from the earlier Guild of Merchants, which basically gave them a monopoly on trading in the port of Bristol. Put a pin in their name, because they're going to crop up again. Anyway. Both his dad and his brother left him property and business interests in Bristol, and he was also, for a time, a partner in a sugar refinery in the city. Heaven knows where the sugar came from. Certainly not from plantations reliant on enslaved African people whose human rights were crushed by white men eager to turn a profit. Why would you even think that? Colston himself only lived in his beloved city for a few years during the 1680s, and then moved to Mortlake in Surrey. Yes. That Mortlake. John Dee's Mortlake. He lived at Mortlake for the rest of his life, so for a man whose name is stamped everywhere in the city of Bristol, he spent very little of his life living there. He carried on his business interests and trading activities, appears to have been active in the parish at Mortlake, and never married. He retired in 1708 at the age of 72. Two years later, aged 74, he was elected as Tory MP for Bristol, and served for three years until 1710. 
he did not seek re-election. He also got involved in another slave trading company, the South Seas Company, acting as a commissioner taking subscriptions. During the years of his involvement with the South Seas Company, it transported tens of thousands of enslaved Africans to South America. Because why get involved in one slave trade company when you can get involved in two? He died on the 11th of October, 1721. Y'all, this guy had a boring life. A nice, cosy, boring life where he had lots of money, had servants, and had one of his sisters looking after him. And, after she died, a niece looking after him. So, why did Bristol make such a big deal about him? Well, money, of course. Apart from making money off and helping run a company that dealt primarily in enslaving people and shipping them across an ocean, in his middle age, he decided to do a lot of uh, donating to charitable causes stuff. He donated to churches, schools for orphans and the poor, subsidising more places for children at existing schools, built schools and almshouses. He worked alongside the Society of the Merchant Venturers in much of this. So, he undeniably did have a positive impact on lots of people, just as he undeniably had a hand in the slave trade, and a very negative impact on tens of thousands of people. But his charity wasn't free of attached strings. Obviously, he gave to causes he supported, and helping kids get an education is a really good thing. Helping the poor is a good thing. But the limits of his charity were strongly circumscribed by how important religion was to him. And by that I mean how important following the correct religion was to him. Here's Kenneth Morgan, who wrote the most recent biography I could find of Colston, talking about one of the almshouses he founded. Quote, He set down firm rules for the operation of the almshouse, and these provide insight into his personality and values. They illustrate his strict adherence to rules that reflected his piety as a committed member of the Church of England and his careful application to business affairs. Thus, in a letter to the Society of Merchant Venturers, dated 5th of December 1695, he noted the need for some men to fill the almshouse, but insisted that none be admitted that are drunkards, nor of a vicious life or turbulent spirit, lest the quiet and order the inhabitants at present live in be thereby interrupted. End quote. To put it bluntly, he had to consider you worthy of his help and that meant being of the right religion and the right denomination. Religion, by which I mean his religion, was super important to him. Again, to quote from Morgan, quote, In a subsequent letter of the 6th of October, 1696, Colston informed the merchant venturers of his almshouse rules. Common prayer was to be taken twice daily and attended by all the almsmen and almswomen. Absentees had to pay a fine of sixpence. Four of the almsfolk were to be from Temple Parish. Only those who were freemen of Bristol, or who had been born in the city, or the sons and daughters of such people, or those who had lived in the city for twenty years, were eligible to live in the almshouse. They were each to receive three shillings a week for their maintenance. 
Colston also paid attention to the auditing of the accounts. The almshouse soon provided a comfortable abode for a select few who complied with the philanthropist's rules. Celia Fines, on a visit to Bristol in 1698, commented that the St. Michael's Hill almshouse was more like a gentleman's house, intended for decayed tradesmen and wives who have lived well. End quote. There were 12 pence in a shilling, so missing one of the 14 prayers per week cost you one-sixth of the money you had for that week. Which means if you miss more than six of them, you're now in debt. And you have to have been born in the city, or have lived there for 20 years. Been there for 18 years? Tough. Nuh-uh, not for you. Want to attend school, but you're not Anglican? Screw you. And, as is suggested by Cecilia Fine's comments, it wasn't exactly the most poor and needy who benefited from this particular almshouse. Which, incidentally, is a building still standing today, and which I have walked past thousands of times. It's right next to the University of Bristol, on one of the city's characteristically stupidly steep hills. I don't want to go into great detail about all the charitable contributions he made, because it's not exactly interesting material, but it's absolutely the case that thousands of people in Bristol did benefit from his charity. But his restrictions absolutely ruled lots of people out of getting any help. And hey, you can say that it's up to him what he does with his money. Then if he wants to stick restrictions on his charity, he's fully entitled to do so. On the other hand, A. Eat the rich. B. We can still judge him for whom he chose to exclude from his charity. Morgan suggests that promoting the role of the Church of England was a notable part of shaping his charitable endeavours. Colston's Hospital, a school for 100 boys that he founded and opened alongside the Society of Merchant Venturers, only accepted healthy Anglican boys. He kept an eye on the state of the school, complaining to the merchant venturers when he felt the standard of education, food, and, of course, religion, fell short. He demanded that they make sure religion was being taught by the book, and that whoever the boys did apprenticeships with were also the correct flavour of Christianity. He used his money to push his religious ideas in other ways, too. In 1710, Colston launched a series of Lenten lectures, and I'm just going to quote from Morgan's summary of them here. Quote, Under Colston's instructions, 14 sermons were to be preached every Wednesday and Friday in Lent in the parish churches of St. Werburgh and St. Peter on specified subjects, including the excellence of the Church of England, the errors of the Roman Church, the Lenten fast, public and private absolution and repentance, and the dangers of enthusiasm. End quote. He also instigated a yearly sermon at Bristol Cathedral on his birthday. Very humble of him. A few years after his death, a not unimpressive tomb was erected for him in the All Saints Church. There's an effigy of him on it, designed by James Gibbs. Yeah, that James Gibbs, who we briefly met last episode. He of the Gibbsian sarcophagi. On the tomb was written, To the memory of Edward Colston, Esquire, who was born in the city of Bristol, 
and was one of the representatives in Parliament for said city in the reign of Queen Anne. His extreme charity is well known to many parts of this kingdom, but more particularly to this city, where his benefactions have exceeded all others, a list of which is on his monument as followeth. He lived 84 years, 11 months and 9 days, and then departed this life on the 11th of October 1721 at Mortlake in Surrey, and lieth buried in a vault by his ancestors in the first cross alley under the reading desk of this church. Then, there's a list of the benefactions. The final words on the monument are, The great and pious benefactor was known to have done many other excellent charities, and what he did in secret is believed to be not inferior to what he did in public. Not as snappy as et in Arcadia Ego, but I'm sure we could find some clues as to the whereabouts of Mary Magdalene's remains if we tried. Photo of the monument on the Twitters. Anyway, after his death, a whole bunch of societies sprang up over the next several decades in his honour. There was the Colston Society, founded in 1726, the Dolphin Society, founded in 1749, the Grateful Society, in 1759, and the Anchor Society, in 1769. The Grateful Society was non-political, and set up to get the alumni of his Colston Hospital School to give donations so that they could continue charitable giving in Colston's name. The others also engaged in charitable work, but also had a more political angle. The Dolphin Society was a political party for the Tories, and gave retirement annuities to the aged and deserving poor. Sounds very much like Colston. Can't just be poor, gotta be deserving poor. The Colston Society was full of Tories, but still engaged in charitable activities, giving money to help with education and the poor. The Anchor Society, on the other hand, was run by the Whigs, the other main political party at the time, though the society played more politically neutral. These societies didn't exactly do their charity in the style of do not let the right hand see what the left is doing. They had to make a song and dance about it. Or, well, a parade. They all had their own ceremonies in which they paraded through the city and handed out money as part of the show. Morgan writes that, quote, These occasions reached their height in the late Victorian period. In the 1880s and the 1890s, each of the four parades attracted between 60 and 70 of Bristol's leading civil bourgeoisie. Apparently, these were mainly men born outside of the city, who capitalised on the mythology of Colston as a self-made entrepreneur to stress their links with Bristol's mercantile past. This enabled them to be accepted as the legitimate heirs of such a history, as people who had continued the philanthropic endeavours epitomised by Colston's bequests. End quote. Now, I'm not suggesting this is intrinsically bad, or that only purely altruistic charity is good charity. But these societies are responsible for the idealised version of Colston that has endured until very recently. These were people, mostly from outside Bristol, who had a vested interest in only focusing on the good things he did, and papering over the bad, so they could use his legacy to cement their own positions of power within the city. The version of Colston that you see reflected in the monuments of Bristol and names of places 
is largely a Victorian creation developed over the decades by these societies. The prestige of these societies helped the wealthy elite merchants maintain their place at the top of the hierarchies of power within the city, and helped other rich merchant types from outside Bristol to join them. And having these positions of authority allowed them to perpetuate their power. This included a group called the Old Corporation and the Society of Merchant Venturers, who, quote, operated as appendages of elite authority, hermetically sealed from those outside the socio-economic grouping by a carefully affected system of self-election and appointment, end quote. So, basically, the rich scratched each other's backs and kept the riffraff out. These groups continued to glorify him long after the slave trade had been abolished in the British Empire, long after Britain should have reckoned with its murderous and genocidal past. But instead of honestly acknowledging Colston's role in the slave trade and reassessing whether he should still be glorified, wealthy men had a vested interest in continuing to pass over Colston's slave trading activities in silence. A reassessment of Colston's legacy never happened, because wealthy people wanted to continue to trade on his reputation to enhance their own. What happened instead was a mythologising of Colston. The parades by the various societies all happened at the same time of the year, to commemorate Colston's birthday, which became known as Colston Day. The parades and the ensuing dinners in the evening became larger events, drawing important figures from all over the country. Discussing the impact of the efforts of the various societies to preserve and enhance Colston's reputation, Roger Ball states, quote, in this way, over several generations, the myths of the cult that portrayed Colston as both merchant prince and moral saint penetrated the Bristol psyche and were fixed to varying degrees in much of the populace. As part of this reinvention, strange proto-religious stories about Colston were propagated. It was said that when his body was disinterred in 1843, more than a hundred years after his death, it was miraculously preserved. Rumours abounded that samples of Colston's hair and nails had been secretly conserved and were worshipped by the Society of Merchant Venturers in the Merchant's Hall like medieval religious relics. Others claim that Colston's philanthropy was due to a religious epiphany, a road to Damascus moment that had turned his life towards giving rather than profiteering. With these implicit references to St Paul and Jesus, along with his explicit representation as the Good Samaritan, created in Bristol churches, the reinvented Edward Colston covered most of the Christian bases. Added to this was the miracle of a dolphin supposedly saving one of Colston's ships in a storm by plugging a hole in the hull with its body. End quote. Moral saint is a pretty accurate description, I think. That whole miraculously preserved body thing very much draws on the idea of incorruptibility, a phenomenon acknowledged by the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, in which, occasionally, the bodies of certain holy and super-virtuous figures don't decay after death, or don't decay as fast as they should. Which is super hilarious to me, because Colston was Church of England, so he probably would not have approved of this. But, hey, we dug this body up for some reason, and it's not as decayed as we expected, is very much the default storyline in cases of incorruptibility. And in that light, the preservation of his nails and hairs also looks distinctly comparable to the relics of saints. Which, again, very much a Catholic and Eastern Orthodox thing. 
And guys, the hair and nails part? That's actually true. I mean, I don't know about the worshipping it part. The Society of Merchant Ventures is pretty damn secretive, but the idea of them worshipping Colston is still a stretch. Unless there legit is a clue in his monument about Mary Magdalene, and actually they decided Colston was the descendant of Jesus or something. Anyway, Roger Ball dug into this a bit, and here's what he found. Quote, In the early 2000s, the Bristolian broadsheet published a story about the hair and nails, which was roundly dismissed by several commentators. However, in 2016, another source appeared, an extract from an essay in the Colston's Girls' School newsletter, by a people who had been on a school trip to the Merchant's Hall and had been disgusted to see the relics. In 2017, Roger Ball obtained a photograph of the hair and nails in a cabinet in Merchant's Hall, taken during a civic dinner. When questioned on Charter Day in 2017, representatives from the Society of Merchant Ventures at first denied the relics were held in Merchant's Hall, but later admitted they were, claiming that they probably weren't Colston's. End quote. Not gonna lie, I did not see that coming when I started researching this topic. But there are two important observations here. The first is about how secretive the Society of Merchant Venturers can still be to this day. Why are they even denying they have it in the first place? I mean, sure, it's unusual, but so what? It's not shameful or something. Secondly, this info about them actually having someone's hair and nails was in the footnotes of Roger Ball's article. Always read the footnotes, guys. It's where the best stuff is. Okay, enough about that. Let's get back to the whole philanthropy and charitable giving thing for a second, though. See, when it came to the societies that were trading on Colston's reputation, well, maybe they weren't actually as beneficial as they presented themselves as being. I'm going to quote from Roger Ball again here. Quote, Perhaps one of the most interesting aspects of this whole Victorian charade is the fact that the much-vaunted charitable efforts of the Colston societies were largely superficial. For example, in 1884, the combined contribution of all the Colston-related charities made up only 1.5% of the total cost of relieving the poor that year. Not only was the amount collected fairly insignificant, despite all the fanfare, but it was also distributed in a badly organised and arbitrary manner. End quote. Yeah. Turns out that distributing money once a year as part of your big pat-yourself-on-the-back ceremony isn't actually an effective method of helping people. Who knew? In 1885, a report was published on the situation of poor people in Bristol, and it directly criticised the societies for their highly inefficient methods of distributing charitable money. So, like, it's definitely legitimate to question whether they cared more about actual philanthropy or about having the appearance of being philanthropists to enhance their own reputations and cement their superior position in society. So, that's the historical context. Now, it's time to talk about that statue. Here's the description of the statue from the Historic England website. Quote, A bronze statue on a pedestal of Portland stone. The statue shows Colston in middle age, dressed in 17th century costume, and leaning pensively on a stick. A rectangular moulded plinth with buttressed corners to a moulded pedestal. Above this, 
consoles to an octagonal base supporting the statue. Inscribed on the south face of the base, the words Edward Colston, born 1636, died 1721. To each corner of the pedestal, a bronze dolphin, dolphins feature on the Colston family crest, and on each face, a bronze plaque with Art Nouveau-style relief. On the south face, the words, erected by the citizens of Bristol as a memorial of one of the most virtuous and wise sons of their city, A.D. 1895, and John Cassidy Feckett. On the west face, Colston dispenses charity to poor children. On the north, he is shown at the harbour. On the east is a scene with marine horses, mermaids, and anchors. End quote. So, it was erected in 1895. That's 174 years after Edward Colston's death. And just in case it's not clear, John Cassidy was the sculptor. But also, that description of the north face of Colston shown at the harbour isn't quite accurate. What it actually depicts is the mythic incident in which Colston's crew totally definitely found a dolphin plugging a hole in the side of their ship. Possibly, it was created by someone who had never actually seen a dolphin, though it's at least consistent with the heraldic dolphins on Colston's coat of arms, which, again, presumably designed by someone who had never seen an actual dolphin. I'll post photos on the Twitters of the various panels. Link in the show notes. So that's what it looks like. And, just to be clear, if this was really about honouring philanthropists, by the time this statue was erected, there were plenty of other candidates available, such as Richard Reynolds, an early 19th century Quaker who donated more money to Bristol charities than Colston did. There's no statues to him, though. Hadn't even heard of him before I started writing this episode. Colston's legacy was not about philanthropy. It was about merchant elites trying to enhance their own prestige and solidify their positions higher up within society. Anyway, let's talk about that plaque that was just mentioned in the description of Colston's statue. As just described, it says, Erected by the citizens of Bristol as a memorial of one of the most virtuous and wise sons of their city. But what does erected by the citizens of Bristol actually mean? Who proposed the statue? Who commissioned it? Was there some sort of public consultation about it? Who paid for it? I'm sure you will be wholly unsurprised to learn that the people behind the erecting of the statue were those societies that had been trading on Colston's reputation to enhance their own ever since his death. The Western Daily Press issue of March 9th, 1894, reported on the plans for a statue to be erected. Quote, A preliminary meeting was held yesterday in the Guild Hall in support of the movement for erecting a statue of Bristol's great philanthropist, Edward Colston. It will be recollected that at the Colston Fraternal Society dinner, J.W. Arrowsmith, as president of the Anchor Society, made the suggestion that the Colston Commemoration Societies should unite in erecting such a statue. And a few days later, Sir Michael Hicks Beach, in his capacity as president of the Dolphin Society, expressed a hope that the suggestion would be taken and carried through to a successful issue. We understand that the object of yesterday's meeting was the formation of a committee, representative of the Anchor, Dolphin, Grateful, Parent and other Colston Commemoration Societies, for the purpose of raising the necessary funds. End quote. Oh, look at that. It wasn't the citizens of Bristol. 
It was a bunch of rich elites that ran all the societies dedicated to Colston. Fancy that. And it was one rich elite in particular, James Arrowsmith. He initially made the proposal in a speech in October in 1893, and a fundraising committee was set up by the four societies to make it happen. Arrowsmith was the honorary secretary of the committee. Despite all that charity by the various societies in Colston's name, and despite trading on his reputation for so long, the members of the societies were reluctant to cough up the money necessary for the statue. Their funding goal was £1,000. They sent out a letter soliciting donations from the 1,550 men that made up the combined membership of the four societies. But when they announced the first subscription list, which detailed who had donated and where they were in their fundraising efforts, they'd only gathered £201. By June, they'd managed to raise that to £407. So, over three months, they raised less than half of the money they needed. This was clearly far slower progress than they'd expected, and the committee decided to invite the public to contribute donations. By October, four months later, they'd raised barely any money at all. Despite their efforts, by the first few months of 1985, they were still stuck around the £400 mark. Which was, you know... Concerning, given that they'd planned to unveil the statue in November of that year. Again, here's Roger Ball's summary of their money-raising endeavours. Quote, In desperation, Arrowsmith decided to turn to public events as fundraisers, particularly those held at the Rifle Drill Hall, where he sat on the management body. In April 1895, profits from a series of promenade concerts at the Drill Hall were advertised as going to the statue and this was followed by an exhibition of handicrafts, which ran from August through to the end of the year, eventually raising £200 for the project. End quote. So that meant they were only a meagre £400 short of their funding goal. After 18 months. Despite not having raised all the money, the unveiling of the statue went ahead on the 13th of November that year, on Colston Day. In reports of the unveiling, Hundreds, if not thousands, of Bristolians were said to have gathered to watch the unveiling of the statue. However, as Roger Ball points out, the annual Colston Day, which had kind of turned into something akin to a public holiday at this point, generally attracted large crowds anyway. So it's pretty hard to tell how many more people, if any at all, attended because of the statue. And the general turnout at Colston Day events itself wasn't because everyone super loved Colston. Because it was basically a public holiday in Bristol, it was one of the few days of the year that working-class people got a break and could enjoy themselves. The mayor of Bristol gave a speech at the unveiling, and again, I'm going to quote Ball's summary of the speech. Which, quote, Concentrated on Bristol's maritime history of mercantilism, and Colston's philanthropy. There was, of course, no direct mention of Colston's leading role in the slave trade through his management positions and investment in the Royal African Company. The same had been true of the whole fundraising campaign. However, the mayor made one major indirect reference in his speech in stating that Colston's business was mainly with the West Indies, essentially code for involvement in slavery and the slave trade. End quote. What's pretty damn sad is that 
that's more recognition of how Colston made his money than many people have made since, whilst defending Colston and his stupid statue. But hey, at least the statue is up now, right? Now they've just gotta, you know, finish paying for it. Arrowsmith and his committee tried to fix that problem at the annual dinners of the societies that evening. The hundreds of wealthy diners attending the different meals of the various societies were all presented with envelopes suggesting they dig into their damn pockets and cough up some cash. But, like, more politely than that, obviously. This last-ditch effort raised a grand total of £12 from the Anchor Society, Arrowsmith's own society, and a whole £1.10 and shillings from the Dolphin Society. Two weeks after the unveiling of the statue, and two years since they had started on this statue business, after multiple appeals to their own society's members, and after appeals to the public and fundraising events, the committee in charge had still only raised £548 in total. By December, they'd managed to wring another £100 out of those who had already donated. About a quarter of it came from the Society of Merchant Venturers. Eventually, a mysterious anonymous benefactor kindly donated the remaining 150-odd quid they needed. It was probably Arrowsmith himself. The citizens of Bristol did not care about this statue. Roger Ball succinctly summarises the whole affair thusly. Quote, At the end of the day, the statue was the vanity project of one wealthy business owner who ended up grudgingly paying for his idea. End quote. And that's where we're going to end this episode. Next episode will be next week, and we'll look at what exactly the actual people of Bristol have said and done, or tried to do, about the statue in the last half a century or so. But next time someone tries to tell you that the damn statue was about remembering history, you can tell them that, apart from the date it was installed and the name of the sculptor, every damn word on that plaque is a lie. In conclusion, Black Lives Matter eat the rich. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please subscribe on whatever podcatcher you're using. Rate and review the show, especially on Apple Podcasts. If you have questions, comments, corrections, feedback, want to suggest a topic, etc., you can find the podcast on Twitter at PoisonRoomPod, or send an email to poisonroompodcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, check to see if your local town, city, state, whatever, has a bail fund to support protesters at Black Lives Matter protests, and or do a bit of research to see if there are any monuments glorifying racists, slave owners, slave traders, or genocidiers in your local area, and then contact your local government representative and tell them it's way past time to do something about it. Transcripts of all episodes are available at poisonroom.com where you can also see the references and bibliography. As always, if the sources are publicly available, they're linked to. You have been listening to The Poison Room, a podcast that would rather learn about the toppling of monuments than wonder why on earth they're still there. The voice in your ears has been watching history get made, not destroyed. <laughs>